Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and today we've got the last uh, Humphrey McQueen for the year. He'll be Humphrey's going to be talking to us after 8.30. We've got, uh, of course, this is the week that was. We're going to look a little bit at uh, environment. But before we do all that, we're going to look, have an update on what's been going on in the industrial field at the moment. And you may have heard that uh, streets workers have called off the ban on streets ice cream. G'day, Don Sutherland. You're going to report on what's been going on. G'day, Annie, and hello to all of your listeners. Yeah, well, uh, yes, I can. I can um, provide um, a little bit, bit more information about the uh, wonderful achievement of streets, uh, and also I think um, the other big victory this week has been uh, that of the National Union of Workers members employed mainly as store persons at Woolworths. Uh, so, two very significant enterprise bargaining. Uh, victories for unions uh, that uh, have underlying themes that I think are still extremely important for uh, union members and the broader working class uh, activists to um, uh, grapple with. Now, uh, in streets, oh, well, sorry. I was just going to say, uh, just as a background, uh, that uh, since the... Uh, Rail freight operator Horizon in 2015 got a, uh, a, a, um, a decision from the Fair Work Commission which basically uh, attacked EBA uh, arrangements. It's all been on for young and old and this is where the streets uh, uh, issue at Minto in New South Wales uh, Unilever saying to their workers, "We're going to disregard your EBA and go back to the uh, award, modern award, and get rid of all your uh, um, pay and your conditions, and uh, setting resetting the clock." That was a major uh, disturbing factor for the workers at Minto, wasn't it? It was indeed the uh, uh, the basic uh, dynamic of the dispute was the uh, right of the employer an unfair arrangement to be able to seek to terminate the agreement and push workers back towards or at the much lower uh, award rates. And as everyone, I think, knows, that would have meant, a 40, on average, around a 46% pay cut for the workers. But they, the workers have uh, fought very strongly. 
strongly and have received wonderful solidarity uh, through uh, the growing boycott of Streets ice cream products. And that has forced the company into more serious negotiations and has led to uh, a settlement that is still to be voted on, I think, in the next few days, uh, in which they're basically... Uh, they uh, the outcome has uh, protected the fundamentals of the shift arrangements and uh, successfully defended the established uh, uh, incomes that derive from the pay rates and associated benefits in the agreement. Uh, so uh, that that is the big victory. But I think there is some other aspects to what's happened at Streets that it shares in common with so many other disputes around Australia and including with the victory at uh, Woolworths. Uh, my, uh, uh, one of the big features, the, way, the reason why the employers are using or threatening to use the termination of agreement uh, opportunity provided by the Act is in the name of competition and often in the name of international competition. In other words, the pay cut and the attack on conditions are necessary to make a particular plant competitive with another unit that operates either in the other, some other part of Australia or overseas. In the yeah, case of because streets, we're talking about multinationals here. In the case yeah, of uh, streets, it's Unilever. Yes, it's very common that it's the threat of international competition that uh, multinational companies who are employers in Australia use. And the case of Streets, the particular location was a Unilever plant in Hungary in which there were significantly less relative wages uh, being paid by uh, Unilever, uh, producing much the same product. But, of course, that was in a much different pricing structure. For example, um, the cost of housing is about one quarter the size of the cost of housing in Australia. So... Uh, but nevertheless, that was the basis of it, and the Fair Work Act enables a company to use um, the, pro- the, the, the the relationship between productivity and international competition to use uh, what uh, is often recalled now as the nuclear option of the termination of an agreement. That's interesting, you know, Don, because it really highlights how the workers' fight is an international fight. Uh, I think... An international fight, exactly, but in a new form. So uh, let's sort of explore that a little bit. The the street workers have won, and they have, in a sense, if they vote up the proposed agreement, as is expected, they will have protected uh, their, uh, their wages and conditions. But throughout the period of this, what would be a new agreement, they will still be subject to the cost pressures that Unilever is able to use associated with lower costs, lower labour costs in other parts of the world. And that threat has not been dispelled. And, and, so people, have, and people have to remember, Unilever is not losing any money. The Minto uh, uh, factory is actually very is profitable. It is a, a, quite a profitable plant, but the company is using the lever of international competition, which it has structured itself in order to uh, achieve even higher rates of profit. 
So when employers compete, as all employers must do in a capitalist system, uh, they compete for profitability. Uh, and therefore, when uh, what street, uh, what the Unilever, uh, who owns streets, are interested in, is how to extract more profitability out of the workforce they have at their disposal, and the ability to do that increases when they have set up a structure of international competition. Now, the that pressure is not going to go away at streets. It is a big the the problem of competition is a big issue throughout the Australian economy for workers. And therefore, the strategy that unions and uh, the ACTU, to the extent that it can coordinate union strategy, is it still remains the age-old problem of how to take wages and conditions and rights out of competition. There's just one more point, I think, about the streets, uh, the streets agreement, is that it is an agreement in which the problem of gender inequality on wages and conditions has been removed. I'm advised, and I'm aware actually from my history in the union, that the agreements that have been put in place, uh, the negotiations for those were led by a wonderful uh, champion of women's unionism, the late Jenny Dow who uh, unfortunately died a few years ago as a result of a domestic violence incident. and uh, But Jenny's legacy is that at Streets and in a number of other uh, agreements that she led the negotiations on, um, the, the issue of gender inequality was front and centre. So what those workers were defending was not just uh, their established wages and conditions, but a really important pr principle that is often neglected in bargaining, and that is the objective to establish equality between men and women workers doing using skills that are of, of, of the same character. The um, uh, in, how does that uh, how what 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 do you, what explain that a little bit in uh, practical practical terms. Well, as I've had it explained to me, the existing and the new agreement does not uh, establish any inequality in wages between men and women. There are about 60% of the workforce at streets are women workers. Their uh, union convener is a woman, a wonderful um, uh, uh, union, one of the salt of the earth great union delegates in the AMWU, uh, Michelle Parkin, who has been been able to emerge as a public spokesperson in the last, latter couple of weeks of the dispute. And so this dispute, in a sense, has been able, in defending the agreement, to maintain something that is not a common thread, thread in enterprise bargaining, and that is a wages equality-based wages structure in the agreement. The, now, my understanding is that... Uh, uh, this is actually uh, uh, this is a negotiation. Uh, so, Unilever basically, uh, like a lot of employers, using this loophole in the uh, Fair, Tra Fair Work Act, have uh, decided they don't want to negotiate. So it turned into a battle to force them to negotiate. Would that be fair to say? Well, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. 
think that is fair to say. Like it's a battle, a war. It became a battle to establish uh, to establish a more serious negotiation, and in the latter pages, stages of uh, because of the um, the growing boycott, um, the Fair Work Commission was able to supervise negotiations in which the workers themselves designed new rosters that would be uh, remain fair to them, but would also improve the efficiency of operations and therefore the uh, ability to maintain uh, a rate of profit at the levels that it, that it was. And that led to, I think it's fair to say, that the boycott was beginning to work and that actually opens up another issue uh, associated with the victory at CUB about the boycott tactic as an industrial tactic, and we might come back to that at another time. Uh, so there, that was biting, and the company, uh, I think, uh, uh, once the union members had worked out a proposition around shift arrangements and associated, associated issues, and the workers are in the best position, they know more about how to operate the plant than any manager going around there, uh, are able to work out uh, how a plant can be made uh, to work more efficiently, uh, then I think uh, the potential to settle the dispute increased. And that's, that's in fact, what's happened subject to the vote that the workers formally must uh, uh, engage in in the next couple of days. And just just to underline to people that Unilever is actually a British Dutch company. It's not an, it's not the bogey Americans because multinationals really don't have any nationality, do they? No, they, they, they usually have a country of origin, and uh, there are Australian multinationals, of course, who um, behave uh, appallingly in other parts of the world. Um, uh, I can't. Uh, well, that's another. It's usually it's well, usually in mining. <laughs> it's usually in mining. Especially in mining. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or yeah. Salvador, for example. Exactly. Um, yeah. I'll just remind so, listeners that they're listening to uh, Solidarity Breakfast, and we're talking to Don Don Sutherland about uh, the industrial landscape, the Winnet Streets, and uh, let's move on to Woolworths. Another victory. Yes, well, I'm not much of an expert on the detail of Woolworths, and, but I think it is, looking at it from afar, it is a very impressive campaign again. The NUW, and, uh, it's the National Union yeah, of Workers. Yeah, where it confronts the rules, but still operating within them, was that the, this is a multi-site agreement. I think there are three large uh, sites. And embedded in it was the campaign for a one big shed agreement. In other words, three separate sheds brought together in one agreement. Oh, interesting. Now, that is an example of taking wages out of competition in a minor way, but in a significant way. This is an old-fashioned union principle. It's the core of unionism to use... The, to, to bring workers together from different workplaces to take wages out of the competitive relationship that exists between their employers and other employers. Mm, so it's so not is, uh, getting rid of the divide and conquer aspect. Yes, and it did so, that's exactly right, and it did so in another way, I think, in looking closely at the campaign, the, the broader Fair Food Australia campaign, 
within which this dispute has developed. It is so impressive in the way in which the NUW is using its online uh, communication with workers with, um, uh, uh, I think it must be Mandarin, I'm not absolutely sure about Mandarin, the Mandarin language sitting alongside of uh, English language information for the workers. This is, uh, I think, a terrific example of a union that is making a breakthrough, not just to translate material from English into a second language that is common in the workplace, which has been done from time to time, not enough, but actually bringing it to life in a, in a new way that's enabled by contemporary technology. So once again, but once again, the theme in all of this is the problem that workers must confront of competition between employers. Well, that's really and interesting because the, the uh, National... Uh, uh, Union of Workers has uh, championed and been very successful in uh, following the uh, chain of uh, pr- you know production from the uh, farm workers onto the uh, where they're being sold, you know, transport onto the shelves, and uh, they have done this by actually facing the reality that many of the workers are actually from different language groups and they've uh, a lot of their delegates as well as their um, now their uh, organisers are actually people from different language groups. Yes, well, you're adding detail that I'm not up to speed with and it's, uh, you know, that is, just, that is just so important in terms of the development of Australian unionism in the 21st century. That is that is cutting edge, and uh, it's terrific to learn about. So, what happened at Woolworths? Tell us a bit, little bit about the backstory. What were they after? Well, I think um, I'm not the best person to uh, ask about that. But they actually won. What they won was a, uh, a, a common agreement across three separate sheds uh, that included four uh, percent pay increases, and uh, it is reported a, a doubling of existing uh, maximum redundancy entitlements. Well, that's fantastic. Now, there is a, yeah. now, there is a claim uh, that this reverses the trend of low wages nationally. Now, as important as, and significant as this victory is, it will not do that. And that is because we are still locked in what a union delegate I saw the other day called silo bargaining. Yeah. In other words, what was good about the Woolworths' outcome was that there were three separate silos, if you like, brought into one agreement. The, uh, the enterprise bargaining method embedded in the Fair Work Act, the unfair rules in the Fair Work Act, requires silo bargaining, often in the name of competition. And as soon as you are bargaining in the name of productivity improvement that delivers a better competitive status of your employer, then you're on a path to nowhere. Yeah, well, this is what this is what the Liberal government did. Uh, I mean, first, for first, you've got the Fair Work Act, but then they diligently, over the years that they've been in power, are tied. The Productivity Commission became the uh, place where they discussed industrial relations as part of productivity, and this is where uh, uh, this is the beginning. Uh, one of the very strong 
element of why the rules are broken. It's so ideological. Yeah, because, it, because it embeds and requires people, if they fall for it, to accept the logic of competitive-based productivity bargaining. It's outrageous. Uh, yes, and, and, and as soon as any group of workers bargains their arrangements on the basis of uh, a competitive victory for their employer against another employer, they are accepting the logic of exploitation and increasing the rate of exploitation. And also that, and, you know, that they themselves are uh, the beast of burden for the employer, that they don't have any other uh, uh, issues that are involved. And it's interesting because recently there was uh, the landmark uh, uh, historical event, uh, the Harvester decision, which of course you'd be aware of, which is the thing that actually embedded the notion of a fair, of uh, um, a, wor- a working wage, you know, a, a, a fair working wage, yeah. uh, the basic, the basic yeah. wage, which is really fascinating because uh, it, part of that early uh, uh, decision was that skilled workers gained uh, uh, an extra amount in their pay, even if the employer was, it, it, it doesn't matter what the position the employer was in. I mean, it was quite clearly uh, stated that it was a, a, a cast iron law, a rule, basically. It was not based. It was not based on capacity of the employer to play. Yeah. It was based on a definition at the time um, in 1907, off the top of my head, uh, of what was required in terms of wages for a man. Well, yeah, it becomes complicated. A family, a wife and two children uh, in, in, quote, frugal comfort. Unquote. But it's that key thing that it's not related to the employer's uh, requirements for profit, etc., etc. It is about the actual needs and uh, the uh, fairness is related to the needs of the actual employee. Yes, that is. A, that, that you're absolutely right. That is a crucial difference, and that takes us into the character of the Australian Council of Trade Unions claim for the next national wage case. And the, the, the meaning of that in terms of tackling the problem of uh, competition uh, as a factor in negotiation on wages and conditions, uh, it's one thing for us to, uh, and I do a fair bit of it, whinging, if you like, about uh, uh, the problem of competition but the question is what we do about it. Now, traditionally, the rationale, the core logic of unionism is to take wages and conditions and rights out of competition. In the national wage case claim that the ACTU has laid out its basic concept for what it's going to pursue, the intention is to reduce the impact of competition in setting the minimum wage in Australia, and it's doing it on the basis of what it calls a living wage, not a minimum wage. 
Yeah, now it's interesting. But no, this is really, really important. But it, it what I, it strikes me is that it means that uh, unions and people, who, uh, working people, are beginning to uh, get off the ground after being punched in the face and re realigning their awareness of what the battle really is about. Because originally everything was based on the Master and Servants Act. Uh, now, uh, basically, it's a matter of. Uh, that the fight was always about the power imbalance between uh, masters and servants, if you want to be characterised in that way. Uh, now it's about lifting the chains off of, of neoliberalism, isn't it? Well, uh, I think it's even more fundamental of that. It's about confronting the dynamic of 21st century capitalism which is really the fundamental dynamic has not changed in over 200 years, although there are important differences in detail. So, for example, international competition as a threat to the status of wages and conditions is much more uh, direct than it was, say, 200 years ago, even though capitalism was internationalising 200 years ago. Uh, the impact of international competition is different. Now, that's, there's, a, there's a big issue there, but the national wage case, as the ACTU claim develops, is going to become potentially a real battleground uh, that would, might enable uh, workers and their unions to begin to return to this struggle to take wages and conditions out of competition and in fact as you say very correctly establish wages and conditions on the basis of workers needs not just of the, uh, the uh, profit demands the profitability requirements of employers it's interesting so, isn't it because uh, multinationals are very powerful and they use governments as their uh, stalking horse don't they uh, yes, they do, and they spend a lot of time um, setting up arrangements to um, work with governments in various ways, lobbying being just one form in which that occurs to get what they want. And it's, I think it's very interesting when it comes to the Fair Work Act, although employers from time to employer organisations, I should say, from time to time have a little whinge about the enterprise bargaining rules, uh, they have not really seriously attempted to change their rules, the rules of enterprise bargaining, nor of the national wage case. In other words, the unfairness in the Fair Work Act when it comes to enterprise bargaining and national wage cases is comfortable for them. It works for them. Yes. Instead, their, their demands upon the government and the government, they have a ready ear that listens to them, of course, with Michaelia Cash and Turnbull, have been to further undermine the capacity of not just unions, but workers generally to engage, to actively engage in a struggle to reverse the downward pressure on wages and conditions and rights. 
Yeah, yeah, and then they have the yeah, and they've got the audacity to come out and say that the only way people can get an increase in wages is if there's productivity. However, they're actually disconnected because they get profits, everyone gets poor. Uh, just recently, or just the other day, there was a, a little rally here uh, in support of the SO workers, the Longford workers, who the skilled yes. workers who've been put aside by. Uh, uh, another tactic that's been going around, which is uh, uh, just cutting their agreement because they've outsourced it to a company that then wants to employ yes. them for less money and all the rest of it. Now, Brendan O'Connor was there, uh, the yes. uh, yeah, and he he was characterising the behaviour of the multinationals as gaming, using the Fair Work Act. Uh, the flaws in the Fair Work Act as a, as a process of gaming, which I thought was pretty uh, ingenuous, really. I, I asked him, I, I said to him, do you, uh, people would say that the Fair Work Act is, is like Swiss cheese, it's full of holes. But uh, the stance now is that uh, the, the multinationals are just, uh, you know, uh, basically gaming. Well, uh, when it comes to this method of, driving down wages. The same dynamic is in operation. The, it's the interaction of um, the rules in the Fair Work Act with, co- uh, with corporations law that enables any person who has got the capital to set up a labour hire agency. Now, that labour hire agency operates as a business, but it might only employ three or four people, but works in a method to find workers who are willing to work at a particular rate, and that rate for the labour hire agency uh, is going to be uh, struck sometimes in an enterprise agreement that has been negotiated by one or two workers directly employed by the labour hire company. That enterprise agreement then establishes the base rates of pay and conditions for Uh, any group or any number of workers that might then be taken on and supplied to a principal company. You know, this this actually, actually, because we've got to finish now, but uh, this actually points out how everything is connected to a large pool of unemployed people who would be desperate enough to sign one of those contracts. Yeah, unemployed and underemployed. The problem of underemployment is more serious even though the problem of unemployment is still serious, the problem of underemployment where workers cannot get enough working hours to sustain their standard of living uh, uh, is, it drives people into a desperate situation. And I can tell a, story, a quick story about how a group of workers were made redundant in one engineering services company they were then picked up by a labour hire company that had a, the most disgraceful enterprise agreement that you wonder ever got uh, registered that had been negotiated by two or three other workers and then supplied that labour into a company that employed uh, uh, 50, uh, uh, sorry, around 1,000-odd workers on a decent enterprise agreement. And that became the vehicle to put downward pressure on the wages in that agreement. Now you can that, see you can, now you can see why this federal present federal government is like poison to to this country. Uh, to, to the the current federal government is like poison to this this uh, the, the working people of this country. 
absolutely. The, the, the role of this government is to uh, uh, coordinate and assist uh, employers at the expense of working people, whether they're employed or unemployed. And every struggle that can be mounted and every, every atom of information that can be shared amongst working people to build the campaigns against that are necessary. And that's where the national wage case must not be a polite process of making submissions supported by witnesses. It must become a political and industrial and social movement every bit as big as what we have seen with the wonderful marriage equality campaign. If we do that, we have we enrich the potential of working people to come together in common instead of in their silos. Instead of being locked in silos, they come together in common to tackle the problem of inequality on, uh, as it is expressed on the wages front. Now, we're going to go out, uh, Don, with a song that you uh, sent me, which I must say is perfectly apt and also terribly amusing. It's a song from uh, Don Henderson, uh, from the uh, the late Don Henderson, yeah, yeah. and yes. uh, now, a couple of uh, just quickly, there's a couple of references that people know. There's a bloke younger people may not know who Nugget Coombs is. I yep. think at the time Don wrote the song, he was the governor of the Reserve Bank, or he might have been a big wig in some other economics department in the government of the day, which I think that when he wrote the song might have been a Menzies government, actually. Yeah, so, because he was uh, he was one of the uh, public service czars. That's right. And he was quite a decent person, actually. He, did, um, he is very uh, deeply recognised by veteran Aboriginal act- activists in their struggles for uh, their rights and uh, their land. Oh. So it's an, there's a couple of historical references, and I apologise, it is gender-blind because it is of its time, but I think people will see that it strikes a contemporary chord as well. Thanks for getting up and talking to me this morning. It's a pleasure, and best wishes to everybody. I dreamed a doctor told a judge from the arbitration court That he would only live to preside over one more case being fought The judge whose conscience was ill at ease Says his lift next case is my last To hand down a fair decision Might make up for my unjust past Well, the very next case it was to come before this very worried sage Was a request to raise by 52 bob the weekly basic wage The old fella granted the wage in full and to assure his place in heaven He made the payment retrospective to 1907 The very next payday after the case Well, I couldn't believe my luck The paymaster brought me wages out On a forklift truck I dream we got paid on a Friday And on that lovely night 
my necklace sent out an armored car for to get me home all right on the way we stopped at the rsl and as we walked inside a poker machine took a look at my pay and committed suicide I looked around as I heard a voice behind me softly speak Twas Dr. Coombs trying to borrow a quid for to see him through the week Then the alarm went off and I recalled as I was waking up that people dream they saw the horse that won the Melbourne Cup But they can't remember what number it was Well, me dream was just the same For I can't for the very life of me Remember that judge's name yeah, so there you go. We've just been talking to Don Sutherland. Many things have been happening on the industrial front. And uh, we're going to move on to the environment. It uh, might have escaped your attention or it may not have. A very important thing that happened uh, in October, October the 8th, there was uh, 18th, there was the... Uh, Bob. You remember Bob Brown went to the High Court to overturn Tasmanians anti-protest laws. People were, there was this uh, frisson of uh, uh, horror, basically, running through Australia uh, regarding uh, the anti-protest laws which the Tasmanian uh, government were enacting to uh, curtail the work of environmental activists in that state. Uh, the laws were passed in 2014 to allow police to stop protests before they had started if they were on a business premises or an access area. Now, the governments themselves was using the pretext of protecting the rights of workers over the demonstrators. Now, um, this uh, Bob Brown took it to the uh, federal court, to the high court, uh, maintaining that uh, this was against the uh, Constitution and basic democratic rights. And he won, which is a great relief to many people. The Victorian, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australian and federal governments joined Tasmania in fighting the challenge to the laws. Uh, but uh, they were rebuffed by the High Court and the uh, uh, challenges against the law, Bob Brown and Jessica Hoyt, were who had been Jessica Hoyt had actually been charged with these uh, uh, crimes against business, and uh, both of them were pleased to be able to say that uh, they are happy that this system uh, within Australia, uh, a legal system, allowed for the maintenance of democratic rights. But of course, um, you also have to have the guts and the money to be able to lead a challenge of that nature. But anyway, this is a victory, uh, an important victory. Now, uh, uh, there are other victories as well that are brought about by uh, uh, challenges, uh, challenges by the population against laws that uh, uh, maintain the hegemony of big business. And uh, uh, there was a Climate Change Act rally 
on November the 1st in Victoria. Uh, I'm pleased to uh, be able to play you this. Uh, this is from Vivian Langford uh, from Beyond Emissions, which plays on Mondays at 5pm. This is about this is the program. It's about community action in order to maintain uh, the fight against uh, environmental degradation in Australia. It's, uh, for some people, it's a losing battle, but it's a battle we can't lose, basically. So let's uh, uh, review what was said on the steps of uh, Victorian Parliament. I'd like to make the most important acknowledgement of all, especially if we're talking about the environment. We are all very aware that today we stand on Aboriginal land. This is the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. This was a land stolen, never ceded. And can we just take a couple of seconds to show our respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and emerging for the honour of standing on this land in Victoria today. Well, the planet's in a bit of trouble. Uh, the reluctance of the federal government to do anything about a situation that threatens life on Earth is kind of alarming. Are there any fans of the Adani coal mine here? Should we be giving a billion dollars on a rail link to make this mine viable? Should we? I can think of one or two other things that we might want to spend that on. Like, oh, I don't know. Education, health, the prevention of family violence, a bit of welfare, pensions. What about a p bit of public housing? Yeah. Bit of sustainable public housing? What do we reckon? Yeah. What, creating jobs in construction while we reduce our carbon footprint, while we create homes for people? That could be a bit of a solution. Billion dollars? What do you reckon? Yeah. What about uh, forest protection? What about investing in creating sustainable jobs around sustainable forestry and sustainable manufacturing in regional Australia? Here's an idea. Why don't we fund some co-ops? Why don't we empower people to determine their own working conditions? I'd like to acknowledge my friends from the Earthworker Collective who I've seen in the crowd. They're amazing work creating manufacturing jobs that are sustainable. These are all things we could do with a billion dollars being given to a rail line for the most ridiculous, deathly, corrupt, awful, nonsense plan. Which is about what exactly? It's about a federal government in complete denial of reality. A federal government where my name's Malcolm Turnbull, I've got a fancy leather jacket, I think that means I'm inner city and cool, has betrayed every principle. Every principle he stood for, not just around the disastrous NBN, not just around his appalling treatment of working people, not just around the, the disgusting postal plebiscite, all of these wastes of money, government ineptitude, bad management, poor governance, but the absolutely monumental challenge of our time, how we make our lives on this planet sustainable, Malcolm Turnbull has walked away from. And he's walked away from it because of factional fighting in his own caucus. He's more interested in saving his own position than he is in showing any kind of leadership or policy direction. Malcolm Turnbull, I made a joke last night, it was Halloween, and I was at home alone doing nothing, so I guess I was dressed as Malcolm Turnbull last night. Which is, of course, better than being dressed as Pony Abbott. Hands up if you think coal is good for humanity. I mean, look how much it's done for us. The planet's dying. Fantastic. I got a lot on my mind. 
It is so awesome to see so many of you here today and I really want you to be riled up and I want you to take photographs and I want you to use your capacity as media makers to get on social media today, on Twitter, on Facebook. The hashtag is Vic Climate Solutions because we have a lot to be grateful for in the state of Victoria because thanks to the work of people like you, grassroots movements, demanding change, organising campaigns, doing the hard policy work, and this cannot go acknowledged enough, the really hard policy work of looking at how we create climate solutions that don't punish communities, that don't drive people out of their homes, that don't d destroy people's belief in their own capacity for working future. Climate solutions with jobs attached to them is the way that we are going to win this, and that's happening in Victoria. And every single one of you Every single one of you should be proud of that. Give yourselves a huge round of applause. Because let's celebrate. There have been 10,000 jobs in renewable energy created from the momentum of this campaign. 10,000. We have a fracking ban in Victoria. Uh, not to mention, I believe recently, we won a renewable energy target, am I correct? And to speak about all of this and more, can I introduce one of the greatest human beings I have ever met, a true ally, a man whose solidarity across so many causes has built so much vibrancy into a broad-based movement. Can you please tell him what a legend he is? It is Lee Eubank. Thanks so much, Van. Perfect, follow. So just a quickie, hands up if you if you think solar power, good idea, yeah? yeah. Right, keep your hands up if you think wind energy, we should roll out more wind. Yeah. Energy storage, you'd love a, ta a Tesla battery in the backyard. Yeah. Right, keep your hands up if you think coal is good for humanity. Exactly, just as I, th just as I suspected. Um, so we're just here today to mark a milestone. So I reckon when the history is written about the the grassroots campaigns for action on climate change, 2017 will be viewed as a bit of a game changer. So earlier this year, after a, a tremendous campaign, we saw this house legislate a permanent ban on unconventional gas and fracking. Yeah. A fortnight ago, we have seen the first legislated renewable energy target pass the parliament. Fantastic yeah. result. We've seen the French company Angie close the Hazelwood coal power plant, the most polluting in the developed world. Yay! And we've also seen the, the Climate Change Act that was gutted by the coalition government in 2011, strengthened by the Daniel Andrews government and take effect today. And that is what we are here to celebrate. Yay! Progress on climate. Good, good idea. Um, but there's so much more work to be done. And the simple fact of the matter is, we've got a government at the federal level that has walked away from climate change action. They're turning their back on our energy future and their inaction on climate change is putting communities at risk in Victoria. Up in Donald, I've been up in Donald in the regional communities and people up there, farmers, wheat farmers, they're worried about the, the extreme weather events that they're being hit with. They're building a, a flood levy to protect vulnerable parts of their town. The same in Charlton. Um, the small rural town of Tarnagulla, where I've been visiting recently, you know, their CFA has shrunk from 45 people to just 10. 
and they're concerned about increased bushfire risk. There's so much work to be done and the Act on Climate Collective at Friends of the Earth have stepped up and we've accepted the challenge. And what we're here today to discuss is, well, what next for Victoria? What next for our climate change policy agenda? You know, we do have momentum here and it's essential that we build on that momentum. Um, we've kicked off a campaign for Victoria's first ever climate change budget. There is no one size fits all when it comes to climate change. You know, all of the communities that I've been speaking with this year have different impacts. But the one thing that unites them all is the need for the state government to support these communities and to invest in climate change action. And they can do that in the budget. So as you've heard before, we've won campaigns, we've won campaigns to ban fracking, we've won campaigns for renewables, and we can win the campaign for Victoria's first ever climate change budget, but we're going to need your help. So next year is an election year, and I believe if everyone around here today gets involved in this campaign, that we can win a commitment from the Daniel Andrews government for Victoria's first ever climate change budget. So you will notice there will be some uh, there will be some sign-up sheets circulating in a minute. Um, please put your name down. We'd love to see you coming to Friends of the Earth HQ on a Monday night for collective meetings. And you know this idea of a climate change budget—it's something that unites all of the interests and all of the great ideas that we have. Your capacity to change the world. And I mean, I just find it extraordinary in Victoria now, the amazing leaps and bounds that have happened with climate policy because of you guys, because of you guys, because of that hard work. And as someone who, you know, like turns up and plays with a microphone and sends out a few tweets, like I just want to express my gratitude to every single one of you for the work that you do, for the knitting nanas, for the lock the gators, for the tree climbers, for Lee and Cam and their car out in regional Victoria, driving around, convening the meetings. You're amazing. You are all actually amazing. Um, Cam Walker in particular is amazing. He's a man I've known for a long time. His contribution to environmental politics, not just in Victoria, but in Australia, is the stuff of legend. Please welcome him to the microphone. I think it's important to start with a little bit of truth here uh, from my perspective, and that is we're here to acknowledge the rebuild of the Climate Change Act, and we should acknowledge that and we should celebrate it, but it does make me feel really sad and really angry that we have to come here today because of this, because we did used to have a Climate Change Act. And I think we have to acknowledge that it will take non-partisan action by all parties to take the required steps to deal with climate change. But the fact is the coalition gutted the act when they were in power. And it's been up to the Andrews government with the support of the progressive parties like the Greens to rebuild it. And that's what's happened today. But it makes me sad and angry that we have wasted half a decade and we only now, as of today, have emission reduction targets again. And if I don't know if you saw in Fairfax today, there was a very good piece around how, even with the paltry emission reduction targets that our country has committed itself to, we're likely to miss them. And there was a great quote from a guy called Frank Jotso who said, we have the technology and we have the ability could, to do it without it being, quote, terribly hard, and politics is the problem. And unfortunately, it is all about politics. And yet, what we know from looking at climate science is we don't have time to waste. We really can't muck around. We don't have 
random half decades to do absolutely nothing. We need to build from where we are and move on. And we're hearing today about transport, about the energy sector, but there's also forests, and that's what I'm meant to talk about, and it's essential we get the forest situation right. Now, there's a couple of things that are pretty obvious. First of all, we live in an amazing place. You know, semi-desert in the northwest to the Alps in the northeast, amazing coasts, amazing forests. We have a pretty good reserve system and we look after our, national, uh, our land pretty well through the conservation estate. There are two obvious glaring links uh, that are big gaps at present and there are very large campaigns to get those areas protected. The first one is the idea of a Great Forest National Park which will link together the existing parks and create one fantastic reserve from King Lake to Lake Eildon to the Borbore Plateau to Hillsville. As Melbourne gets bigger, as it gets more crowded, as it gets more congested, more and more we are going to need somewhere to go, to be, to recreate, to be in beautiful places and wild places and that park is really essential that we, that we create it now. It's also where a lot of our drinking water comes from and there's also huge economic benefits that come with ecotourism. So there's a whole bunch of reasons we should be protecting these forests, not least because of the, the fact that those places have a right to exist, but there's also a carbon imperative. The other big issue that's on the table at present is a thing called the Emerald Link, which seeks to finish off the reserve system in a Gippsland, linking the mountains of the Erinundra Plateau with the coast of Crow Long National Park. Another thing we know from climate science is that as species start to move under the pressures of climate change, you need impact ecosystems to allow them to, to, to move, and hence this idea of a link between the coast and the mountains. So though, both those things are really on the, the, the front uh, part of the agenda of the Green Movement as we look towards an election year. And they're essential for biodiversity, they're essential for recreation, they're essential for open space and just places to be full of spirit and beautiful, you know, just wildness. And they're also really important in terms of water, but they're certainly important in terms of climate change. Now you're probably aware that the ash forests, particularly the mountain ash forests that are east of here, are some of the most carbon-rich forests on the planet that when they're left upright and when they're allowed to turn to the old growth phase, they store massive volumes of carbon. A lot of them were burnt in the 39 fires, a lot of them were burnt more recently in the 2009 fires, and they are being hammered. And we need to protect what is left. The time for what's called large volume, low value native forest logging is over because a lot of the forests that are cut end up largely as pulp. That does not make sense in the 21st century. So what we need to do and what we will be doing, and we're working with a whole bunch of allies around the state, is to call for all political parties to support this vision of a Great Forest National Park and the East Gippsland Link. And as I say, it will be good for us as people who live in Melbourne. It'll be great for the environment. It'll be good for our drinking water, but it will be really important as a part of the jigsaw puzzle of solving the issue of climate change or the, the wicked problem of climate change. So I'd urge you to get involved, support these campaigns. They really need to be up and supported by the main political parties by the time of the election next year. Thank you. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when for once we must genuinely thank big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull for doing all he can to protect us from the worst symptoms of parliamentary democracy, like the government making decisions. All he can by taking a very important decision to avoid the lower house making a decision. A very important decision, obviously, making life a little better for all of us. 
it decided only one House of Parliament can sit at a time and can only sit to discuss one item a week. After a week of discussing that item, it must make way for the other House to spend a week discussing one item and so on reducing substantially its capacity to make decisions, pass laws, all those things that are not better for all of us. Some cruel commentators suggest this extremely beneficial parliamentary program is driven less by public altruism and more by private self-preservation, as if a government would put self-interest first, and concern for the private banks, although the latest very accurate truth in advertising campaign has the banks spending a fortune telling us we all own them, we all own the banks. So apparently it's all right to wander in and just ask them to hand over our money our property. Fill this bag. The bloody socialists and long-haired greenies and cross-bench lots are carrying on and saying both houses of parliament should meet simultaneously and discuss numerous issues. 116 years of that, and where's that got us? Have they no thoughts for our welfare? On good, good people trying to make life better for all of us, must apologise to one of them. Apologise for last week calling Business Profits Council spokesperson Jennifer wants a cut to wages an arch-conservative. You might remember, although given the usual memory span related to the week that was, probably won't remember, but we asked former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses if he was at least happy that his conservative sister and arch-conservatives like airline supremo Alan Joyce's profits and Jennifer wants a cut to wages could now marry their long-term partners if they want to. No, he said, the dear baby Jesus is weeping. Well, apologies when Jennifer has gone out of her way to make life better for all of us. Sorry, Jennifer. At the same time, in making life better for all of us, exposing what we had the prescience to expose some weeks ago, that the World Bank is the biggest long-haired commie greenie threat to the world economy going, a bolshy front bent on bringing down the greatest little economic order of them all, exposing that World Bank Communist Manifesto report which claimed, that if you missed it last time, you're going to laugh yourself silly at the inanity of it all, claimed, wait for it, the trickle-down effect, those drops of yellow liquid, doesn't trickle down. And, and this is the most erroneous claim of all, that tax cuts for the filthy rich do not generate jobs, do not drive economic growth. Simply, the World Bank commie front claimed, simply put more filthy wealth into the pockets of the filthy rich. Well, thankfully... The Troubler was he put Business Profits Council has asked its members about this and they all declare if only they could get a tax cut, they would invest more, would create jobs, would generate growth. And Malcolm, who addressed them the other night, said arising from the survey of the filthy rich, the message from business is clear and compelling. It is proof tax cuts will create more jobs and higher paying jobs. What more proof do we need than the true Luozzi Profits Council surveying itself? Malcolm doesn't need any more proof. Well, what would the World Bank know? And releasing the results reluctantly, apparently. Because economic guru Scuttlebin more less said business should do more to help the government help us all through its tried and proven policies of helping the filthy rich get filthy richer. But the Profits Council was reluctant, he said, because it might be seen to be partisan on these matters, not the neutral caring for all of us body that it is.
as if anyone would think Jennifer and co, the and co, including Malcolm, Scuttle, them and co, were partisan. Come on. It's all very complicated, though. We've been saying for ages that this seemingly intractable problem of slow wages growth has an obvious answer staring us in the face. But those who know about these things know it isn't that simple. If it was, they'd just pay workers more money and problem solved. No, the selfless community altruists that the Business Profits Council explain, if only they could receive a tax cut and then invest and generate and employ and increase productivity from their lazy, avaricious workers, then they may well be able to pay those workers a little more. Now, Productivity has been increasing for ages, but this hasn't been reflected in wages, little rhyme there, showing we need more productivity. But productivity obviously hasn't been increasing in areas like hospitality, restaurants and cafes and junk food, salt, sugar and fat franchises and deliveries of same and fruit and vegetable picking because those poor caring employers have been forced to slash wages. Although in fairness, most of that has been inadvertent. They didn't realise they'd slashed wages. Must have been too busy to notice. Many of those who slash wages for workers making wedding cakes, for instance, may be faced with a serious moral dilemma. So to give them hope, as the, the confetti dust began to settle following the same-sex diversionary tactic, the confected bulldust attempted to block the light with more diversionary tactics from the usual suspects who fervently believe majority rules. Except when minority rules, like when 30-something percent must rule. In this case, the majority must accept that the diversionary tactic raised during the diversionary tactic to avoid debating the substantive issue people were ticking on their diversionary survey form must now be adopted. In other words, the argument 62% of us voted against must prevail. As Scuttle then promoted the confected bulldust during an interview this week, the interviewer reminded him he had said some months ago he would not discuss the matter because all he cared about was making life economically better for all of us via the drops of yellow liquid trickling down. Which, thanks to Jennifer and Malcolm and Business Profits Council members, we now know works and does work despite the World Bank agit prop. So why was he talking about it now? Because the government took a decision on this issue some months ago, which was news to us, as well as we have no idea what it meant, but at least the interviewer followed up. Um, what decision was that, Scuttle, then? We took a decision not to take a decision. And as Malcolm tried, vainly it turned out, to divert the diverters by establishing an inquiry into whether the dear baby Jesus needed protection, it was suggested he didn't have the guts to stand up to the diverters, that minority rules was determining policy across the board. I showed true leadership, Malcolm boasted. I had the guts to capitulate. Good news on the transport front that long, long-running soap opera, A Train to the Airport, episode 5,432. This time expected to have the first sod turned within a decade, a mere 10 years. We now look forward to A Train to the Airport, episode 5,433. 
modesty of the week award uh, episode thousands to us of the un of the us of the world big supremo donald trump or the poor quite properly slighted by and castigating the father of a young bloke well a, a young guy imprisoned in china who was released donald told us for no other reason than donald was donald great great the father hadn't faked him obsequiously enough. Probably just said something inappropriate and inadequate like, thank you, Mr. Supremo, or thank you, Donald, when clearly nothing less than a daily kowtow before a permanent altar to the Don God with eternally burning incense and gold coin sacrifices dropping into a Don copper would be appropriate. Talk about ingratitude. Although... An altar with a turtle incense could be mistaken as having a Chinese connection. So perhaps we should think that one through, because we know China poses a major threat to the US OBS hegemony in China, or in the waters and lands around China, all a part of the US of the world, our great security protector, which shares the great values honed in protecting ourselves from Turks or Afghans or Iraqis or Malaysians or Koreans or Vietnamese or... Well, it's a long list of honed values. But there is this minor problem. Evil laying claim to China, China, despite the US of, and therefore True Blue Aussie knowing China is thus defying US of the world international values, remains nonetheless True Blue Aussie's number one trading partner. The minister be going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bashup, the workers, explained how this was not a dilemma. We understand, the Chinese understand, but we understand what the US of understands, what the Chinese understand, what the US of understands, what we understand, the Chinese understand. Sorry, I don't understand. That's what I said. What is there not to understand? Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Little Billy Short and Ambition, said he understood and agreed with Julie. When it comes to the US of true blue Aussie values, you'll get no disagreement from us. We still remember what happened to Gough. Finally, the sundry governments got together yesterday to seek agreement on the ATIV. ATIV? Why is it called the ATIV? Oh, no, no, wrong. The NEG, not the ATIV. The National Energy Guarantee. We guarantee... Minister for Fossils Josh Prydem Icebergs explained the ATIV, sorry, the NEG, those who matter, those who drive the economy. Uh, guarantee what? We guarantee, see, certainty. And we can be certain what it guarantees. Good morning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Humphrey. Humphrey McQueen's on the line. G'day, Humphrey. How are you? God, very well, Annie, and your good self. Yes. This is the last for the year. We've come to it the end. for us, I know, but we'll be back next year with some more ideas as we build up to Marx's 200th birth anniversary. After the 150th, we're about halfway in between, and we'll keep plugging away. But today, today, I want to have a look at one of our other themes, which we've always linked into what Marx has had to tell us about the nature of capitalism, and that is how our old friend Global Capital is travelling at this particular moment. Which is where I thought we might start. It's perfect. Pre-Christmas drinks. Pre-Christmas drinks, yes. And some, as we'll see, some good screwed before we... Um, Now, 
as we've said often enough, um, the, our old friends, the Bank for International Settlements, had warned 10 years ago that disaster was on the horizon unless the governments and corporations did something. Well, they've done enough to stop it falling over. That they've certainly done. What the bank isn't sure about as to whether what all the governments and corporations have done is to postpone the terrible day and made it worse just by postponing it. But, but anyway, we haven't had the catastrophe. So what they all agree on is that they don't know what's happening. It is called, the, we're now in what is called uncharted territory. They're holding so their breath. That, well, <laughs> some, of them, some of them are trying to do deep breathing exercises, I think, to try and work out what the hell is doing on as they're underwater. Um, so we can't go to Marx for ready-made answers about this, but what we can do, I think, is to look at what he was able to offer us. And However, I want to start with a bit of what might look like fairly good news if you're concerned about the future of capitalism and the worry that it might be about to implode on you. Last year, the government of the Argentine issued, asked people to invest in a lot of government bonds. And with next to no time, they're all sold. Hmm. They're going to be redeemed in 2117. Yeah, you did hear right. hundred <laughs> years from now. Supreme confidence. Supreme confidence. And, of course, it's the confidence in this most blessed of all possible capitalist systems. Now, that's one reason for giving you money. The other might be is you're totally ignorant of what's happened in the last 100 years. And you think there, are no, there were no upheavals, or you think there aren't going to be any more. And that is a bit of a problem in the case of the Argentine because they have defaulted on their government debt six times. So you've given them this money for 100 years, and the assumption is that in the next 100 years, they're not going to behave like they did in the last 100. So something else is going on, right? So something else else is indeed going on, and you'd have to ask yourself, what is it? And part of that explanation, I want to suggest, is why the... Part of the reason why the U.S. stock market and the market here trailing along is now up over 23,000. Why is that beginning to happen? People say, oh, well, it's because Trump has promised there will be all these mm-hmm. corporate, um, you know, they won't have to pay as much tax. Given that most of them don't pay any tax anyway, I don't see quite the causal connection, but we won't go into that nasty area. So you have to ask yourself a question. Would you be better off putting your money into a New York share or into an Argentinian bond? Well, you're probably better off for New York, but we can't be entirely sure about that. And we need to examine this a bit more carefully by looking at one of the criteria that if we were share traders, um, that we would normally apply something which is called the PER, Price to Earnings Ratio. Sounds how much reasonable. Does it cost? Yep. How much does it cost to buy a share? How much do you expect to get back from the share? What's the ratio? Now, let's have a little simple case. You go out, you buy a share that's just been issued for $100. At the end of the year, they give you $10 uh, as your earnings. Um, so you've got a PER of 10 to 1. Now, after 10 years, if you've been getting 10 Um, 10% back every year, there's a good chance that the value of the share on the market 
the bit of fictitious capital will now be 200 uh, on the expectation that you're going to keep on earning at a rate of 10%, which is about twice the, you know, the historic average for, for the whole of the system. So price has gone up to 200. Somebody comes along and wants to buy the share from you. They've now still only getting 10, 10 back, so they're getting half the rate of earnings. So the PER is now half of what it was. So not as good as racing odds. Not, no, probably not, you know. My father used to say a man might be silly enough to put his money on a horse, but you wouldn't put it on a dog. Um, <laughs> so it might be getting to look like some of these shares are in the same description as being a kind of dog in a kind of investment. So that, now, those figures, I've just, you know, we've just been plucking them out of the air. What about the real figures? What's it actually been? in some historical sense. Well, <clears throat> if you go back um, the last 50 or so years in the post-war period, the average decade you know, has been about 10 to 1. So, so, so you know, as we said before, you pay about $100 for a share, the earnings on that are going to be around $10. What's the state today? 25 to 1. For every $25 you now put out, you get one back. Mm, okay. So that's the highest rate that anyone has ever, ever, ever seen. Something odd is happening. Why? If you're now paying... Oh, sorry, something's happening to the line. Keep talking and see if it's okay. I might have to call him back. Hold on, we'll put on something and we'll have to get him back. Are you there, Humphrey? I am indeed. Oh, goodness me. That was 
wild and woolly. Go on with what you were <laughs> well, talking. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll go a bit faster and catch up with ourselves. But we're yeah. saying there's excess capacity up, um, you know, in, in the whole of the system. There's excess capacity in the productive system, which is where you have to begin. We've been stressing over and over again that this crisis was not a financial crisis. The financial area is where it exploded in 2007 and 8. But it happened there because of a long period of build-up of excess capacity in the productive system. And people then looking for new ways to be able to, in, to invest their funds even then. And that's kind of where we are now. So that the excess of financial capital, of all this money with nowhere else to go, that's the backstop for the boom across the big board in New York. It's why people are giving the Argentinians their money, all of that. Now, however, catch themselves. And I should say to the listeners, if you want to this, and he will be posting it up on the site so that the so that the full written text you'll be able to read it and you know be able to digest it perhaps a bit more there. Let's look at one segment of the New York share market. Now, five of the most prominent new tech firms have lost a hundred billion dollars in the last ten years. Meanwhile, their market valuation is three hundred billion dollars. Wow. So they lose a hundred billion and you, get, you value them at $300 billion. And one of those five is headed by Elon Musk. We have to ask ourselves, are we back in the dot-com bubble of 2001? Well, Mr. Musk has been out here spreading what some of us might politely refer to as a kind of stardust. He's come, one of the companies, um, the car maker, called after the wonderful Mr. Tesla, uh, that's never paid a dividend and is not meeting its production schedules for this year. Indeed, the company lost $1.8 billion in the last financial year. However, in the early months of this year, despite that, the share price went up by 66%. So somebody has said about him, he seems to have a license to lose money. So everybody wants to get on board the Tesla train. Everybody wants to get on board, and you therefore have to ask why this is. I'm going to suggest there are four reasons, and we'll go through them pretty quickly. One of them is hype. The very company name is part of the propaganda. Alfred Tesla is a kind of secular saint among people who, who, who have any idea who he was. I'm a bit inclined to think that um, our friend Elon Musk is a bit like the great Gatsby. Um, Scott Fitzgerald refers to Gatsby's belief in the orgiastic future. And that's what um, Elon Musk is offering us. We're going to get electric cars. We're going to go to Mars. We're going to be a battery to solve all the blackouts in South Australia. We're going to have a no-carbon future. And the share price, in part, floats on this desire of the public to believe that a saviour has come. All these things are going to be fixed. Does Musk believe it himself? Well, he probably does. They used to say about Steve Jobs that he was a reality bender. <laughs> uh, he could convince people. If he was in a room with you, he'd convince you of anything, um, particularly if you want to believe it. Now, at the moment, and during the week, intriguingly, I've had to alter what I was going to say a bit because things aren't getting as good for Mr. Musk as he would like. In the week up to the 17th of November, um, only about two or eight days ago, 
he lost well, his fortune, and this fictitious paper fortune on the stock market went down by $800 million. Uh, at the moment, the Telsa arms bleeding capital at the rate of $10,000 every 60 seconds. That's $10 million a week. Wow. Now, what they're saying about him is he's got to raise $2 billion. He's got to find the greater fools by this time next year in order to stay afloat. Well, who knows? It's not impossible out in that mad world because three years back, three years back, the stock market valuation shot up by five billions during the course of seven days. Mm. Uh, what we're looking at is a very strange way of doing business with all of this bouncing up and down. However, there's another way to look at it, I think. It's a bit, bit more substantial. And that is, we've got a new version of the Ponzi scheme operating not just with this particular company, but right across the board. Uh, going back to what we were saying about what's been happening on the New York stock market there. Now, let's go back to the original Ponzi scheme. It, it, you know, from 1920, um, how it worked like this. Some crook would announce that he was going to launch a new company. He cons people into, into investing in him, and then he pays them an annual earning out of the money that they've lent him to invest in the company, which isn't actually doing anything. Now, that high rate of earnings is going to attract more people in. And as long as lots of new money rolls in, as long as there are more greater fools, the crook can keep paying out an above average rate of profit and so attract in more and more new people. I find it interesting that you say he. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at no point has he gained anything by exploiting any wage slaves. He's just recycling a lot of what arrives through the post. Now, of course, at the same time, he's putting a bit of it away for himself. Eventually, it turns out that the new investments aren't going to cover all of these huge amounts that he has to pay out in order to attract another round of investors. The Ponzi, therefore, collapses. Now, that's the standard story of what happened, whether it was in the 1920s or in the early part of the, of the 20th century, uh, of the 21st century. Um, that's the standard operation procedure. There seems to be a monotonous now, pattern there. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, a friend of mine used to head up corporate affairs for the Australian um, Investment and Securities Exchange, uh, the Protection Commission. He said what they discovered was there's about 5 to 10% of the population who want to give their money to some kind of criminal. And you can't <laughs> stop them. No matter what warnings you put out, they still want to give their money to somebody who's going to steal it from them. So, so there is that um, sort of <laughs> operating on behalf of the Ponzi scheme. That was the original Ponzi. But this time, if, if, if you look at firms like Tills, um, you know, these ones that aren't paying why are people giving them money? I mean, in the past, you know, they were recycling your investment and pretending you know, of what they were earning, and they weren't. But now they're not even doing that. You're just giving them more and more money. The reason has to be, surely, that the share price, fictitious cap, you put in $100 years ago, now on the stock market, as it's gone above 23000 it appears that you're now worth three times as much as you were 10 years ago. Oh, and and there's earning. nowhere else to put the money. 
well, and nowhere else. I mean, this is this is the other thing. I mean, if there were if if there were many places in which you could earn by exploiting your wage slaves or something else in, a, in an indirect way, you might be tempted to do that. But at the moment, we've got this huge, you know, and trillions and trillions of dollars really with nowhere to go. So that's the. Are you, are you are you saying that the capitalist system is hemorrhaging? Well, parts of it certainly are. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. You know, and that. But at the moment, it's really. I mean, it may be hemorrhaging, but it is at really its problem is that it's at a fever pitch. You know, it's kind of. I mean, one has to wonder with the market going up to twenty three thousand and things, are we moving to a point of crisis in which someone's going to say? What's the PR? What are we getting back for this? We keep putting our money into the system. When are we going? You know, how many of these new firms and these people like Mr. Tesla and others are going to come along and actually pay us something mm. for being able to do this? Because that's really how the system has to work. Um, now, people used to do what was called um, a kind of um, calculation on what the opportunity cost was. If you if you put your money in one place, you might get 3%. You put it somewhere else, it's 5 So if you put it into the 3 the 2% you might have made somewhere else. Or you might have lost out on making a capital gain. You do all those calculations. But as you were say, saying, at the moment, when bank interest, which is the old secure place you could put your money, where people, you know, go... Someone like me who is entirely risk averse, I put my money in a bank, you know, because I'm just frightened of anything else. You know, that may not be very bright, but that's all I can cope with. Now, in most of the world, if you put your money in a bank, you're actually losing money. Yeah. It isn't right. safe at all. So people, therefore, are more and more tempted to think, I've still got to live on the interest. You know, I mean, if, if that's the only money you've got and that's the only source of your income, you think, mm, someone's offering me something more than this, perhaps I should go there. Yeah. So we are indeed in uncharted territory. And now, I mean, we haven't mentioned Japan, where the stock market there is kept up by the government buying shares. What a great idea. <laughs> and in China, they've come up with an even brighter idea. Many of the corporations there have long-term debt which is no chance, bad debts, they're never going to pay off. You know, they don't get get. So what have they done? They've said, oh, these aren't debts, actually. These are investments. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, know, you just change the name and you think, oh, no, we aren't in debt anymore. We've just got more investors than we had last week. So this, these are the things that are going on around us all around the world. So as we move up to Christmas, what do we do? I'm, it's illegal for me to give you any financial advice because I don't have a license to do it. But when we see what some of the licensed people get up to, I don't think we should be too <laughs> concerned about breaking that particular bit of the law. So should you buy a share in New York at an over-the-top price? Well, you'll get a small return. Uh, and who knows? The Argentinians might actually be able to keep to their bond. Well, we'll have to add, though, that at the moment, they've got an inflation rate of 25%. So it may not be the smartest move in the world. But what about our friend Mr. Musk? Well, once the new money runs low, normally a Ponzi promoter either ends up in the clink or they disappear. But everybody else loses. Everybody else loses. Well, unless you've sold out first. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's the other trick. That's right. <laughs> then, <laughs> Your you know, timing. It's all you know. in the timing. 
bit all in the time because somebody said the moment to sell is when the lift boy starts to buy shares. <laughs> now, in the case of Mr. Musk, I really don't think that we could say that he's planning to skip planet Earth and take his shrinking billions off to Mars with him. But I think it's no more fantastical to suggest that that's what he's planning than it is to believe that his SpaceX is ever going to get off the ground either. So, happy summer solstice, and we'll be back in 2018. Oh, sorry Great for the rocky. Yeah, sorry for the rocky road, but oh, thank you very much. There we go. All right. It'll Bye. It'll be up on the site. Bye-bye. Yeah, sorry about the rocky road, but we got there in the end, and uh, we'll be going out the door two shakes and uh, Asia Pacific currents will be coming in. So we talked about the industrial re uh, relations landscape this morning with Don Sutherland. Streets has called off the uh, ban on Streets ice creams. Uh, we went to the environment and we finished with uh, Humphrey's last message for a happy Christmas. Uh, we'll go out with Eva Popu Exit Door. <laughs> to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.